we are back again for another week of movie time. I hope you all had a wonderful, wonderful week starting out. And th today we have an amazing, amazing uh, guest. If you wanted to know someone who it's like can tell you from the business end to the actual production end, this is the show for you. So today, and we also have my wonderful, amazing co-host, Kinte. Hey, how you doing? I'm doing wonderful. Uh, it's been a great weekend, and I'm excited to chop it up with you with our wonderful guest tonight. Are you schwitzing in California? It is very hot, as it's been for like quite a while now here in Los Angeles, and uh, I'm sweating. I ain't going to even lie. I am sweating, but you know what? We're not going to even talk about that. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, yeah, it's like, uh, I love the fact that the weather's still holding up. And tonight we have our most amazing guest, Mr. Steve Emerson. How are you doing? I'm, I'm doing great. I, I am not sweating here in Seattle, Washington. So, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I'm missing the hot weather. But up here in Seattle, it's already fall. We have cooled down. Ah, it's like yeah, so getting nice cool weather. It's like it's nice to live by the water. Water, water everywhere cools us. Yeah, keeps us cold. We're, we're we're good here. We're happy in the Pacific Northwest. We we miss the media centers of L.A. and New York, but uh, we can't complain. Let me let me ask you a question. Uh, being up in that area, have you guys gotten over the Super Bowl yet? Because I'm not from Seattle, and I haven't gotten over that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, uh, I'll be honest with you. Uh, I got over that pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. This season, I'm having trouble getting over with. The Seahawks are two and three, and they do not look good. So, you know, hey, big bad play happened. We won the Super Bowl the year before. Right. Uh, but this year, ugly. I don't know if you've watched them play. Yeah. <laughs> Yep, I love that team, man. Yeah, let's do let's do sports radio for an hour. How about that? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, that, uh, that'll be our future show. We, uh, we can do an hour yeah. of sports radio too. <laughs> no, seriously, it's like we could. It's like I, I can chop it up with like the whole baseball thing because it's like go Jays. <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Well, baseball hurts up here in the Pacific Northwest, also. Uh, so you know we we don't we don't we're 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 in a tough spot right now after our our recent couple of uh, Super Bowl appearances. Not so good now. <laughs> it's that whole Mia Koopa thing. Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> but uh, so, Steve, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how uh, how did you get to where you are today? I I'm happy to, and uh, it, you know I probably have a. a We'll call it an alternative story to how I got in the in the movie business. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I'm a Pacific Northwesterner native, and you know went to school, college, law school, did the whole thing. Uh, you know here through the University of Washington, um, started practicing law. Had no idea that entertainment or the movie industry in any way was something that I would uh, want to enter. And this is back in the late 1980s, so that'll give away some age here. Um, but I, but what's interesting is I went to work for a very large law firm, and at that very large law firm we had a very large client, and you wouldn't know the name, but if you were in the Pacific Northwest back at that time, there was a a very large uh, exhibitor of motion pictures, and and they were called the Sterling Recreation Organization. And literally in the Northwest, in the Northwest, they owned all the movie screens, except six screens. So you imagine wherever you are, all of the movie theaters that you can think of, in the Northwest, they were owned by one company. Mm. And, and at that time, there was a big, uh, because they were a client of our law firm, as a brand new lawyer I got, we used to call them the golden ticket. Oh, wow. And the golden ticket meant it was a perk of being a lawyer at mm. that firm. I got to go see any movie and take anyone I wanted, which was, of course, my new wife. And uh, we would go because we had no money, uh, and we saw everything Hollywood produced probably for three years. And I'm not joking, everything, everything. If there were six movies playing at a multiplex, we would see them all in two nights. We would just marathon because it was free and it was a perk. And that's where I got the bug about the movie industry, was simply being a fan, wow. seeing that much content, during that era when that was the only way really to see movies, right? We didn't have the Internet. 
It was all go to the movie theater and see movies. So that was my, uh, you know, immersive experience. And um, uh, in that experience, what I realized, and maybe this is the ego that people that go to law school have, I, I don't know, but I saw so many mm-hmm. bad movies, bad movies, that, you know, you sort of sit there, and you've done this, haven't you? You sit there and you go, I could yes. do that. Oh, I could do that. I could write that. They wrote a line. That line made it in the movie. And that experience, not really aspirational, but just sort of like, some of this sucks. I think I could do that. Uh, got me to thinking that I would love to. I had some stories I was interested in telling, and I started the process of writing And by the mid-'90s. So, you know, five, six years into my law practice, I was also trying to break in as a screenwriter. Uh, mm-hmm. Again, not in Los Angeles, in Seattle. Um, and I uh, wasn't practicing in the entertainment business at all. I was a commercial litigator. If you've seen Aaron Brockovich or the movie A Civil Action, mm-hmm. uh, I yes. did that work. I, w- I was doing environmental, super fun, cleanup litigation nationwide, oh, wow. and nothing to do with the movie industry. So this was all kind of my second gig, was trying to break in as a screenwriter. And uh, re- finally wrote a, a feature film that got optioned, um, and... You know, because the film got optioned, I got invited to come down and do a lot of pitching, uh, and I ended up on studio lots, uh, being driven around on golf carts, and I thought it was, I was such a fanboy, I thought it was the greatest thing ever. Mm-hmm. Absolutely greatest thing ever. Uh, and I thought it was easy. You know, I really was like, I had written this first feature spec script, and, and, and it was getting some attention, and it was very dark, mm-hmm. and uh, it was a serial murder, police procedural, and uh, a movie named Silence of the Lambs, hadn't come out yet. And, and so there was uh, sort of this interest in this genre. It was new and fresh at the time. Now, of course, it's about the least fresh genre you could have. But it got me into the industry and, got, and gave me the bug. And uh, so that was kind of the, how I broke in as a writer, ended up with a manager and working on indie projects. And between that point and today, I've written and produced, you know, a half a dozen indie films that you've never heard of. <laughs> um, and uh, but they're features and they're out there and they all got distributed in some fashion um, and so that's kind of the, the creative side still my favorite part of the business is writing uh, but what I found and, and maybe more relevant for our show is, uh, is, is, is if you're going to live outside of Los Angeles mm-hmm. uh, and you want to be in the movie business you've got to be a producer you, or you at least have to have some producing skills you have to understand the business side because we, we can't just live in a cave anymore and type on a typewriter and hope that somebody buys our spec script. That's not the market. That's not how it works. Absolutely. So you that's, have why, to that's how I broke into the movie business. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, which is great. And that means it's like you have to wear multiple hats in today's day and age. Because, yes, it's like the, it's no longer the I have a really great script. And uh, it's like there has to be. Um, so talk about a little bit more about the, also it's like in terms of a startup entrepreneur, like the package that uh, the sure. person of today would ha- need to have. Yeah. So I, you know, in terms of, you know, so I started out as a writer and, and, and ended up getting some work for hire uh, feature work. And so I was getting paid to write some indie features, which is wonderful. Realized that I better figure this out because unless I was going to move and I didn't want to move, I was raising a family in, in uh, Seattle. Um, I had to figure out how mm-hmm. to do the business side. And at that time, at that time in my career, and this is, you know, kind of into the, into the late 90s, um, I ended up leaving practicing law entirely because, and this is really typical in Seattle and in Silicon Valley, uh, I joined a startup uh, game company and uh, ended up running that company for six years. So I wasn't practicing law. I was running a company. And that's the experience. What's that? Are you able to say its name? Oh, yeah. That, that company was called Front Porch Classics. That company was not a video game company. That company was a hard goods toy and game industry play. So it was a, um, I mean, we did a lot of licensing work, and, and, you know, we had Major League Baseball licenses, and we did licenses with 20th Century Fox to create games. But this was more uh, traditional board game type stuff. Um, and, and, but, you know, you play, strangely enough, you play by all the same rules in that industry, and uh, look it up, Front Porch Classics, you'll see it doesn't exist anymore, but its products still exist, um, and are sold by a company uh, called University Games. 
that was the experience, though, to answer your question, that really got me going on the startup entrepreneurial side because in that, starting up that company, we were a, uh, first, we went through all the traditional phases of, that any entrepreneur would go through in a creative enterprise. You know, we had to go out and raise friends and family financing. You know, we, we kind of got friends to throw in about $125,000 in that initial round. Um, and then we went out and got a second round of financing. And then finally we got a venture capital firm in Seattle uh, to throw in about a million and a half dollars. And then ultimately the company had DC financing, probably totaling about $7 million in a couple different rounds. And then we uh, went on and on and on, and then the company got sold and merged to a, to a New Jersey company. So I had that kind of birth, life, and then I'll call it death merger with another company um, and, and where the operations move. Um, but that's the part, you know, I probably pitched during that period 35 venture capital firms around the country, obviously a lot in Silicon Valley, some here in the Northwest, some on the East Coast, and you start really getting beat up on how you put a business plan together. And so all of a sudden, you know, the light bulb's going off and I'm going, well, I'm, develop I'm developing business skills and, and I'm geeking out on that. I, it's really interesting how do you present uh, uh, goods or services. Yeah, how do you do a really, really solid business plan that makes people with money want to give it to you? What's the what's the secret of that? And so I started merging that skill set when I when I returned to law, and that's sort of the third act in my career. Is after this company was merged into a larger company uh, in New York, uh, I went back to law and joined this law firm I'm with now, Race Point. These were the lawyers I hired when I was running the game company. So I basically went backwards, uh, joined Bracepoint, and completely revised my law practice to pursue the creative enterprises I'd been doing with the game company. I know that sounds confusing, but it's a lot more fun as a lawyer right now instead of litigating Aaron Brockovich cases to be uh, helping entrepreneurs and filmmakers, uh, both on the investor side and the filmmaker side, you know, start new projects. Way more fun. Absolutely, and a lot. Uh, it's like there's a lot that is involved in it. Everything from the process of getting the rights and stuff. We were speaking a little, uh, a little bit earlier on over the week about you know how important is it to chase rights, and how is it that somebody can actually pursue these rights and stuff. So then that way, it's like you get the clearances that you need. Sure, I I, I think that you know every project that you know I've got clients that come into the office and they're. Um, you know, the, the, and it, I do some teaching at the UW and, and some of the film schools here. And because I sort of had this merger of, you know, filmmaker world and, and lawyer world and business world, this comes up a lot. And it's, it really is, you know, there's really only a couple things that you can do. You can either create something that's original and then you own the rights to that original content. And if you didn't create it originally, that means someone else created it, which means it's most likely, you know, to the nth degree subject to copyright by someone else. So you either have to buy it from them you know, or license mm -hmm. it from them, or or make the bold claim that it is it is uh, somehow in the public domain, or that you can use their material uh, as a matter of fair use. I mean, there's a limited number of options, and you are right. You are 100% right. I mean, that is not something to put off till later in the project. You do not write a you know spec spec script feature, you know, based on someone's life, kind of hoping that you'll show it to them and then they'll love it. I mean, you could, but that's what, that's the horror story approach, right? That's the that's where mm -hmm. you get slammed and, and, and you don't get the rights. I always believe, and I you know, in all the businesses that I've been involved in and counseled, and 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 from the litigator's perspective, earlier in my career, all the problems I saw, you know, the the beginning of your project is the honeymoon phase, yes. and and it's so much easier. It's just so much easier. This is not legal advice. This is human dynamics. It's just so much easier to knock on a door and say, I'd like to make a movie about you. Let's talk about that. It's so much easier to say, hey, we're writing together. Let's get that in writing. That, isn't that smart for us as writing partners to get it in writing? It's so much easier to say, hey, you're telling me you want to be in my film. Can I do a, a two-page attachment agreement so that we kind of understand how that works? In the honeymoon phase, it's easy to solve those problems. It's it's also easy to solve those problems if your project fails, if nobody's mm -hmm. interested, because nobody nobody usually gets sued over a project that never got off the ground. Mm -hmm. um, where you get in trouble is when you don't get it in writing at the front end, you don't secure the rights that you're talking about, um, 
your project finds some form of success, now you're in trouble. Success breeds trouble, strangely enough, in this business. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, I'm always, when clients come in with projects, I'm, I'm dogging them on the rights and creating, you know, sort of how do we put together your chain of title? You have, you're hiring someone to write the script. Mm-hmm. Are you doing it with an option agreement? You know, are you buying it from them? Is it work for hire? You know, walking them through how to document that transition of ownership of this intellectual property into usually a limited liability company because they also have an idea that they want to go out and raise money. And so and we, we have to count them on that. Absolutely, and the fact that a lot of LLCs, it's like if you don't uh, incorporate an LLC, and if it's not shown as a legitimate corporation, then you could run yourself into a lot of personal uh, lawsuits as well. Yeah, it, it really is You know, one of the big four kind of things you think about when you are uh, starting a company. Um, you know, it really is, we call it Startup 101, and because we do game and toy work at our firm, we often go to the American International Toy Fair and we do seminars there. And we and we sort of say the big four in startup is, number one, what's your structure? Are you going to be a limited liability company and why? And is that taken care of? Number two is we've already touched on it. Have you got the rights to what you're doing, intellectual property? You know, number three is how are you going to fund this company? What's the capitalization? Um, and then the fourth thing we always say is, you know, you're an entrepreneur. You're either you're a filmmaker or you're a game designer or, or whatever that creative thing is. You know, you ought to know, even if you're not a lawyer, even if you're, you know, even if you don't like the law stuff, you don't want to do the business stuff, there's going to be a bunch of contracts, and you can hire lawyers to help you with all that stuff. But usually there's one contract in all those contracts, which is the contract that leads to someone writing mm-hmm. you a check. They'll write you a check, Right. There's only yes. one contract. In the movie business, it's a distribution deal, right? That, mm-hmm. that is the one contract, if you're a producer, where someone is finally writing you a check, right? Yes. I always suggest that is the one contract that, even if you're not a lawyer, you ought to understand completely. You should understand that one inside and outside. You know, you should be able to negotiate a distribution deal as a filmmaker. I mean, you don't have to, you can get a lawyer on board, but it's like, that's why you make money. That's why you're in the business, if you are in the business to make money. Uh, have some understanding of that one. When you understand the distribution contract, it's going to inform everything you do all the way back to the very first deal you sign um, for a writer to get you know on board to write your script. So um, those are the big those are the big four things we talk about. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and it, it, it's true whether we're making movies or designing games. Same. Now, an advantage that you had, you know, uh, a secret weapon, if you will, is the fact that you, you know, you're an attorney. So you not only had the creative part down as a writer, producer, but then you also had the the law part. Now, going into this business as an attorney, um, was there things that even, you know, you had to learn maybe the hard way or not about the business angle that even being an attorney didn't uh, protect you from? When you first got started. You know what? That is, that is such a good question because it, this might give comfort to people who um, who are in the business. And the answer is yes, of course. You know, even as an attorney, there are so many areas that you don't know. And when you enter a new area of law, um, you've got to not only learn the law, but even more importantly, what is the what is the industry overlay on the law? For example, um, we could talk about. Uh, let's say you're a, a screenwriter. And someone comes to you with a option and purchase agreement. They want to, you know, have an option uh, for you your screenplay, so they can go out and shop it around town, and yep. and then uh, find somebody who will finance the picture. And when that financing comes in, then they want to have a, an agreement in place to purchase it. And, and and so you're looking at an option agreement. And you know, in my first year of law school, I could look and understand. You know, I can look at and understand a an option agreement, and and if you and I spent half a day together and looking at option agreements, you would also understand them. The missing piece in every different industry you enter is, yeah, but what are the deal points that are acceptable in the industry? Because if someone comes to you and shows you an option agreement and it says, uh, for a hundred dollars, I would like to option your script for ten years. And then they tell you, oh, that's industry standard, right? And you don't know. You can understand the contract. You know what it means. We can all read English. 
you know, we kind of understand. But we don't know if 10 years is really industry standard or not. Of course it's not, right? Of course for mm-hmm. a essentially free option, it's going to be the shortest period that you can negotiate. If you want someone to take the rights to your screenplay and shop them around, you're going to give them a short leash. If they want to pay a lot of money for the option, you're going to give them a longer leash. And you have to kind of understand what those deal points are. So you're right, Kinta. Um, that is my, I mean, I had to learn all those things as well. Even as a lawyer, when I finally decided to put my toe in the water and actually either practice law in the entertainment world or be a producer in the entertainment world or be a creative in the entertainment world, I had to learn those exact same things. And one of the biggest learnings is, you know, industry, when someone tells you it's always done that way, yeah. You, you know the game. You know the game when sometimes people like you, you go out and you have Chinese and you get a, you get a, a fortune cookie, mm-hmm. and people will say uh, open the fortunes, and then around the table you'll all say um, um, add the phrase you know, with your mother. So whatever the fortune yeah. is, you add a, you add a phrase at the end. It's a game. We laugh, right? Right, right? I always say there's a version of that game, and the version of that game in the entertainment industry is is when someone says it's it's always done this way. And then I would say the rest of the phrase is for people who don't know how it's always done. <laughs> always, you know, it's, it's like, oh, yeah, this is the way we always do it. And I go, yeah, you always do it that way when people don't know the way they should be doing it, right? Uh, and they're not willing to push back. Um, and they're not willing to potentially, you know, what I call walk out of the car dealership, right? I mean, the best way to negotiate a car price is be willing to walk out of the dealership. That's when, you know, when they, that you'll really walk out. You know, so the best way to negotiate your option agreement is to have an understanding of what you're willing to do, and if that production company won't pay or doesn't, you know, you know, it's common in indie world to have zero options or really small fee options. That that happens, but it should be a short period. It should be three months. Right. Yeah, and no so, more than one year, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, you know, that's all going to be the subject of negotiation. So, uh, but I think that the the thing to understand is is you know that industry standard is. A, you want to learn what those industry standards kind of are, what the deal points are, and then B, you sure got to you know have the confidence to say, I think I know what they are, and I think you're asking for too much, and I'm not willing to do that. Well, uh, just like in distribution and, agreements, the in perpetuity, it's like they want the rights forever. You want the uh, a, a limited uh, that at one point in time that the rights revert back to you uh, in regards to that. So it's like that's another negotiation. Absolutely, and, and, and as a you know, um, you know, I'm a, a feature that I did that I was the I was the both a screenwriter and a producer on. Oh gosh, it was four or five years ago. Called um, uh, it actually got released under the name Crimes of the Past, and it premiered on Lifetime actually, which was really weird because I wasn't writing for Lifetime, so it was the strangest place to end up. But it was great; we got paid. Um, the uh, the uh, um, um, uh, oh gosh, I just lost my train of thought as I dropped that name. What were we yeah. talking about? It's like we were talking about uh, the fact that it's like with regards to distribution deals because it's very true. It's oh. like uh, you know they yeah. want in perpetuity, and uh, yeah. as a producer, you don't want in perpetuity, yeah. and yes, it's somewhere yes, between yeah. now and eternity. But <laughs> and that's exactly the issue we were dealing with in that particular project when we negotiated the distribution deal. It was either perpetuity or thirty years or something like that, and. And we ended up on that particular deal negotiating down to, I believe, to seven, which I felt was a reasonable amount of time um, and probably as far as we could push uh, them. Because, you know, they do make an investment. They're trying to roll it out around the world and selling rights country by country and, you know, maximizing their profit. And they would like to wring all the water out of that wet towel. You know, they're going to try to get it all. But, you know, gosh, at some point, you're right. Try to get it back, you know, even on a distribution deal. Because you want to build your own library too, as well as also future Exactly, exactly right. So, so yes, you know, having an attorney is critical. One of the things we end up talking about a lot with our clients who are new filmmakers. I mean, they're you know, and and, and often like me, you know, a filmmaker who is for whatever reason independent, truly independent filmmaker, filmmaker making films for less than million dollar budgets, often less than hundred thousand dollar budgets. Uh, making web series, making short films, you know, all these different formats, is, 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 is just kind of getting a feel for what is the price. When do you need a lawyer? You know, because, mm-hmm. yeah, sure, we all love to have a lawyer. We'd all love to have a lawyer looking over our shoulder on everything. 
But at a budget of less than $100,000, you know, you really can't drop 15 grand on a lawyer. You just can't. You're not going to see it up on the screen. And it's a catch-22. You need the legal advice and you want it, uh, but you really can't realistically start dropping that kind of money. So what do you do? And a lot of times it really, one of the best conversations that I'll have with clients is, you know, what's essential? You know, and, you know, what do you got to do? Like, you have no choice. You have to do this. And then reach an agreement on that and then say, hey, if it turns out that, a big name star joins the project, then the budget goes up to a million and a half. That's a whole different scenario. But if you're going to make the picture for $100,000, you probably have no choice but to make sure you've set up your LLC. Um, you probably have some really limited options if you're really trying to raise outside money. Um, if you have some intellectual property you have to tie down, absolutely, you cannot do it. You know, if you got to get a life story rights, you know, you got to have that done. So, so what's the, what's the, what's the fewest arrows in the quiver, you know, what is that, you know, and, and what can you, and then understanding the business risk you're taking on the other issues, you know, I think most of us as humans have pretty good judgment, I have clients come in all the time, they're like, they're always asking me the question, can I, can I, you know, go on the internet and take 50 seconds of a song and, and put it in my movie, I, you know, and I go, <laughs> And I always, go, I always go, I don't know, what do you think? And they go, probably not. I go, well, of course not. <laughs> <laughs> most people actually know the answer to most of their questions, right? They, they're just kind of hopeful that it's not the answer they expect. Um, um, anyway, um, I, I think that when you get a feel, if you, have a, if you hire a lawyer for a project and you have some essential, you know, and, you, and you actually pay the lawyer for some work, that lawyer is your best friend. I mean, they... they they have a lot of people asking for free work. And, and if you go out and you say, you know what, i got a picture, it's got a budget of $100,000, I can't afford you for all the things I would like. Can we come up with a small subset? Can I pay you $2,500? Can you cover A, B, C, and D? Can you give me some counseling on all these other issues so I feel like I'm, I'm heading in the right direction? I'll take the business risk of being wrong, you know what I mean, that I don't have a lawyer on every issue, but if you can help me on some of these key contracts, if you help me with a contract that helps me sign my director, I can probably use that contract intelligently to sign on my cinematographer, and, you know what I mean? You work together and have a partnership there, you know, you're gonna, that's the right thing to do. You can't possibly drop 30 grand on a lawyer for a $100,000 picture, right? Not going to happen. Yep. But some money is well spent. I do also have a question, though, in regards to that. It's like making your lawyer your EP with you, because if they can negotiate the deal, actually making them as part of the production, if they are willing to take that on. Good, good point. And there are there are lawyers who look at a project and say, "I'm in. I'm, I'm effectively an investor. I instead of getting paid, I am." Um, going to take a percentage of the film. I'm actually producing the film. Absolutely. If you get a, you know, I, I would say this, you know, getting, getting a lawyer who does not know either the law or the industry is helpful, but not super, super helpful. So, you know, be modest with the points that you award. <laughs> um, um, but if you have a lawyer that comes on board because they believe in the project, they have an understanding of the industry, both legally and practically, um, and, and, and even better, if they have enough connections to sort of take that project down the road a little while um, so that they can make introductions that you might want. You know, they know how to work the film market, for example. And if you're doing genre content, you've got a mm -hmm. horror film or, uh, you know, raunchy comedy and, you know, all of your, um, all of your potential, um, you know, buyers are, are floating around selling stuff at the film market, you know, and they understand that, then great. Then that's a, you know, and you can seduce a lawyer to come on board, absolutely do it in a pinch. Cash is king. Hold your cash, get people to work for points, sure. Yeah. Now, with technology, it's made the the world even smaller. You know, we can we can uh you know, we can talk to people in China from California or wherever, you know. So that that's the great thing about technology. Being that you're based out of uh Washington uh state um, has that helped you, hurt you, or does it matter at this point uh, where you're located at as far as your film endeavors? That's a that's a good question. I uh, I I, uh, I understand that you know uh, my favorite writer of all time is an old timer, William Goldman, wrote Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, and mm -hmm. and uh, I, I I always always fear meeting him someday. 
because I, I used his character named Dread Pirate for a game that I designed and launched when I was with a game <laughs> company. <laughs> I knew it was legal, but I always thought he'd be pissed if he knew it was me. So, <laughs> so um, anyway, you know, in his original book, um, uh, you know, he's written these iconic books, and, in, in, you know, he talks about Hollywood as the fire. I don't know if you, you've heard that, you know, and the idea is that everybody's trying to get as close to the fire and the fire burns hottest, you know, let's say at the hottest studio or the hottest A-list star and everybody wants to be close to the fire. And I'm well aware that, you know, having made a life decision to work in Seattle, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not very close to, I'm not close to the fire. I have to figure out a way for me to navigate, create, if I want to participate in the industry as a creative or participate in the industry as a producer or as a lawyer, I've got to figure out how to navigate that as a lifestyle choice. And that's really the answer to the question because there are opportunities that are more difficult, even with the technology, uh, even with, you know, for me, you know, it's a two-and-a-half-hour easy flight to Los Angeles. You know, so I do meeting. You know, I've got stuff going on in L.A. all the time, and I'll be down for the film market and probably even before that. And, and, and so that does happen. But, you know, I'm not there. I'm not there. And uh, Vancouver, British Columbia is just north of us, and it's a big hub of production. But there really isn't much overlap there. So the technology has been terrific. It allows me, I work with lots of companies. I work with lots of clients who are not in Seattle, for sure. Um, I think from a legal perspective, you know, I am, uh, as a lawyer, um, you know, it doesn't seem to be any kind of a barrier, probably more marketing than anything else. Um, I don't. You know, we're not licensed to practice law in states other than the state we're licensed to practice law in. But most of the work that is done by lawyers for, let's say, a client in Los Angeles is is, is really, you know, it, when we're talking about a contract, we're not appearing in court in California. That's, yeah. that's practicing law. So that that's really a common thing. Uh, you know, lawyers in Los Angeles obviously do work for, you know, for... Uh, creative clients all over the country. So that really isn't a problem. So I think there are some limits, you know, some limitations to answer your question, and I think it's a lifestyle choice. Um, got a lot of clients who work here for a while and moved to Los Angeles, and, you know, they're working there right now. One of my favorite new cinematographers, T.J. Williams, Jr., look him up. He's brilliant. Uh, uh, moved down there a couple years back. Um, and, you know, so there's people that you know here, and, and, and eventually if that is, you know, the dream, you're going to go there. You're going to go to L.A. Um, eventually. Um, and, and my dream is, is a hybrid. It's, I started out, I said it's an alternative path. <laughs> <laughs> was, there, was there ever a point where you were even tempted to uh, make the move? No, I mean, no. And, and But that is, you know, that was very personal. You know, my daughters are now 24 and 21. And, uh, you know, I have pretty strong roots here. And I broke into the business, you know, really in my, what, you know, I'm 30 years old when I broke in, uh, you know, as an outsider. And uh, that would have been such, you know, already practicing law. You know, that that was such a lifestyle choice. So the choice I made, and I I see a lot of folks doing this that are, you know, and it's, I suppose it's not that different than waiting tables, the cliche waiting tables in Los Angeles, you know, while you're waiting for a break. And, and sometimes always waiting tables for the entirety of your career and doing both is, you know, I'm a lawyer and I'm blessed now having, you know, had some interesting experience in the, in the game industry uh, to transform my practice, practice to work a lot in, in, in creative worlds. And I can also pursue um, these, you know, actual creative endeavors that are not law, but, you know, still, you know, still, like I said, still my favorite part. I've got, I've got some projects, you know, in some interesting places being read, you know, and, and that's still the, that's, that's the honeymoon stage for me is, you know, creating new material, finding new material, or particularly creating new material and, and starting with, like everybody does at the beginning, you know, working it up the food chain. That's the fun part. Uh, also, too, uh, you, you said you're a father. What do your daughters uh, think about uh, your film? the films that you've created and just, you know, their daddy being in this business. Uh, do you guys ever talk about that? <laughs> well, I, I wasn't expecting that question. That's, that's a great question, man. <laughs> uh, I think, uh, I think they have come to appreciate that work that I have done, uh, as they have, you know, kind of cleared high school. 
um, you know, I think I think they were, you know, very very normal kids who probably didn't think a lot about what their what the professions that their parents had. I, I think I was a really 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 cool dad when I was making games. That was neat. You know, when Dad went to the toy fair in New York and brought you know a you know a bag full of toys that hadn't been released yet home, I scored <laughs> a lot of points. With that. Uh, that was cool. <laughs> but I think now that I am uh, now that the the girls are older, um, both of them. My younger daughter, who's twenty one, is a is a has been a photographer since she was in middle school and actually makes a bunch of money as she's still finishing school as a photographer. And it was really fun. She did her first giant wedding this summer, mm-hmm. and uh, and and my wife and I went and crewed for her three hundred people, big barn, outdoor wedding on the water. I mean, what a stressful event! Your first photography gig, and you're 21 years old, right? Wow. It was like crazy, but it was fun. So, so she's kind of got this creative streak, and then my older daughter is, um, um, you know, college grad, but and, and she's working for a really neat company that does all the. I don't know if you know what geocaching is. Yes. It's, mm-hmm. uh, yes. So she works for the company that runs the worldwide geocaching activity here in Seattle, and. Uh, so and, and it's really a cool place to work, and uh, she has also started a nonprofit that you guys. I'm going to give you the name. Everyone should look it up. It's so cool. It's called the Sidekick Collective. The Sidekick. Oh, this I did look that I'm up. Gonna, the Sidekick Collective is. This is so great because uh, I didn't know. I, I assumed I wouldn't pump any project, and I could pump a project my daughter's involved in. That is so cool. Thank you guys. That's Sidekick cool. Collective. It's a nonprofit that uses superhero mythology, everything that we, we know from the Marvel and DC movies and comics, uses that mythology as a way of, of literally investing in high school kids. And I mean, I mean literally investing in them. Um, finding kids who are doing extraordinary things already when they're in high school and telling them, hey, instead of saying, here's some money for college, go to college, we don't care. We've picked you. And because we've picked you, because of your superhero powers, maybe you started the food bank, maybe you did whatever it is, uh, we've set money aside, and when you're ready for it, we're investing in you, whatever it is. Wow. And it's so cool. It's such a cool wow. idea, and it's, it's just getting started. So, so just have fun. Look it up on the web. Yeah, There's this I, thing called the Internet. Look it up. I, yeah. I added yeah. it, it, it to it's yeah, I actually did look it up as well, the Psychic Collective, and I thought it was very interesting in uh, regards yeah. to it and being able to actually see some of the success stories as well on there that they yeah. talked about. And it's like, yeah, it's always important to get from the grassroots at the high school level so that it's like whatever somebody wants to do in life, it's like that, mm-hmm. they, ha- that they know that they have a mentor there and yep, have exactly, a mentorship. And not always is it financial. It's also a physical mentor as well. Yeah, can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine if someone had come to you? I mean, how if you're 21 years old, let's say you're 21, and whether you're on a college campus or you're working in some nonprofit, whatever it is, and someone went to you, came to you and said, um, um, you've got $25,000 when you're ready for it. Mm-hmm. We've already decided that we're investing in you. Um you can't take it for a year because we want you to have a, the chance to give lots of thought about when. And you have 10 years to take it. You can just hold it there. But the idea is, is how would that change how you view the world? Oh, my God. It, it, it would change everything. In your hip pocket, you've already, and you've got the mentoring yeah. behind it. it. You know, that's like, we, 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 we laugh. I go, we're Professor X. We're finding the mutants that are awesome, and we're telling them they, we want them to come to our school. <laughs> yeah, and the, and then anyway. just, I agree, and it's very encouraging too for them because then they go, okay, you know, somebody believes in me, somebody believes in the dream. Yeah, and we look for alternative kids. We don't, you know, somebody who's got a perfect grade point average and lettered in every sport. They got plenty of people behind them giving them scholarships, and they've got you know that dreams paid for. But there are a lot of kids who aren't that kid. Right? Yeah, they're who, the creative artistic child. Yes, yes. So anyway, so thank you for letting me pitch that. That that's really generous. I had no idea. You, uh, I went off the rails. Thank you. <laughs> oh no, uh, no worries on that. It's like we uh, we enjoy actually hearing about ex- uh, outside projects as well, 
it's like yeah, that and how important because th they are extremely important because it makes you rounded also as a human being it's like what human being doesn't like knowing that other people are involved in causes that go outside of their industry as well everybody loves that oh for sure. yeah yeah it, it really it really does i'm 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 uh you know first of all as a dad it was fun to talk about my kids so thanks yeah. second is i think they're doing some pretty cool stuff and it's worth taking a look at and then the third thing is what you just said you know those things that that figuring out how to uh you know you know really i mean it's so cliche but i mean you're you're, you're sort of saying you know here we are today can we do something that makes everyone around us a little better off tomorrow you know what is the thing and 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 that's 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 desirable that's nourishing absolutely um, it's it, it's actually one of these we haven't talked about yet is film festivals and that's one of my favorite things about film festivals is i think for you know folks that are making films on on the on the fringe you know you know independent films that are truly independent you know the idea you know when you when you go to a really great film festival and, and I'm not necessarily talking about Sundance or Toronto or, you know, sort of those A-list festivals because, you know, in a sense, if you get into those festivals, things take care of themselves. In a sense, that's like being a 4.0 student and the, you know, varsity athlete. You know, people are paying attention to you because you got the Sundance. That's, that's, that's news. But, you know, there are hundreds or well, thousands of festivals, and some of them, you know, on that, we'll call them not the A-list, uh, are so stunningly well supported by their communities. You know, as as a filmmaker, you know, if you're breaking out your first film, you know, you find out what those festivals are and you go, you know, that is mm -hmm. very likely your that's your theatrical release. You know, playing playing twenty phenomenal regional festivals where where the theaters are full because there's a lot of festivals as you probably know that you go and you realize you screened at seven o'clock on a Friday and there were four people in the audience. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, that's that's not that's not necessarily a great theatrical screening, um, but when you go to a festival where the communities and they're out there, where the communities absolutely you know embrace the festival, the town almost shuts down, the theaters are full, and you know the Q and A is amazing, and everyone there wants to buy you a drink, and then the next morning they see you on the street and they want to thank you for the experience you provided. That that is priceless. That is nourishing, and it's you just you know it, it, that's. That gets you to. It's like, oh, I need to make another film. <laughs> That's what makes Definitely. it worth it. Yeah. And, and having the, it's like a lot of people don't know that. And uh, luckily, also places like Without a Box also uh, talks a lot about these film festivals, so that you do get to get the undergrounds as well, and the people who yeah. are the not so known uh, film festivals. And definitely, uh, that's something that uh, is amazing uh, as well. And also, it's like it's also good because it also builds you a fan base for when you are yes. building. Uh, it's like. Because then they go, oh, well, we saw your, this person's film last year. Well, we'd want to see what new thing that they have coming out. Yeah. And they'll likely cool. tell their friends. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I mean, finding out where those great festivals are. I mean, I'll, I mean, this is this is just because it's in my own experience, right? I mean, one of the one of my favorite festivals, and I'm on the, I'm now on their board, so so that's bias. You can you can <laughs> you know take it with a grain of salt, but. Um, the Port Townsend Film Festival, you've never heard of it. You know, I mean, you might have, but, you know, typically you would not have heard of it. Port Townsend is a waterfront community, an old waterfront community, uh, you know, about two hours out of Seattle. It's hard to get to, absolutely gorgeous. I mean, just, you get there, you, you've just gone back 100 years. Town shuts down, embraces this three-day festival. They always bring in some Hollywood celebrity, um, and the theaters are always full. And uh, what, one of the things I've been doing for the last few years is we give up, we give like uh, 20 scholarships to film students who are just starting film school. In, some, in one of the schools in the Pacific Northwest, they come up, they get a free pass to the festival, they get three days of lodging. And on the first morning of the festival, I sit down with them and give them Film Festival 101, how to work a film festival as a filmmaker. Um, and, and the idea with that is, you know, you don't, you're not there as a filmmaker to just go see films. And that's part of it. Mm -hmm. uh, what you're there, to, what you're there to do is to, you know, you know, the cliche. You're you're networking, but you're networking with a purpose. You're finding out. You need to be. You're, you know, 
normally you're going to a film festival because you have a film playing. If that means that if you have a film playing, you need to know who the programmers are so you can thank them in person and establish a relationship because now you're an alumni and you want to go back with every film that you make in the rest of your career. So you need a personal relationship with all the programmers. And then you want to meet the executive director. And then more importantly than that, you want to meet who are the primary donors to the festival. And you know what? They're all wearing a badge. You know, it's just all this really yep. funny, you know, sitting down for an hour with these students who have never been to a film festival and giving them sort of this, how do you use this lanyard hanging around your neck effectively? It's super fun. And then for three days, it works the festival. It is great. It's just a really phenomenal experience. Uh, and, and it gets them going. But, but that's the point. The film festival has so many things if you understand why you're there and how to work it. I mean, first of all, it's a blast. You know, and, uh, you know, second of all, it's good for your career. You know, once you're in a festival, you're an alumni, and you should have every project that you make at that point should have a, you know, you're not guaranteed to get in, but they want you back. They love alumni. Also, it's a great opportunity as well to also get the education that you don't get inside the classroom because your classroom is great for your basic education. Your film festivals are where you actually get the knowledge of the insiders on the industry because they'll tell you the things that you didn't learn in the classroom. Yes, yeah, that's, so, that's such a good point. And I always tell them, like, like at a film festival with a sold-out screening when the filmmaker's there, you know, pay attention to Q&A. You know, pay attention to how that works because... Here, if you're a filmmaker in your film, let's say there's an audience of 300. Port Townsend has big audiences. They fill the theater. And your film just screened. People are crying, whatever. And you go up there as a filmmaker, and somebody's there, and they start doing q I mean, you've been given a gift as a filmmaker. And the, the gift is you just moved an audience, you know, in a, in a, in a wonderful setting. And, and now that audience, you have them in the palm of your hand. Don't be the filmmaker that goes up there and doesn't do good Q&A. Be the filmmaker that goes up there and, and absolutely seals the deal with the audience. 300 people in a film festival audience, I'm telling you, 10% of those people, 10%, that's my mental number, I always think mm -hmm. 10% of any, any audience, can help me with my career, not because I'm using them, because they want to help. I mean, one of them might yeah. be an investor. Two of them might know people who want to be an investor. You know, three, I mean, it's just people want... But, but seal the deal with Q&A. You know, don't, 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 not, don't not do that. And, and watch how people do it. Because when you see good Q&A and you see a filmmaker up there, they can kill it, you know. And you know everybody wants to, you know, they're all dreaming. Oh, if only I could be on the red carpet with that person. I'd love to be behind their next film. That person's going somewhere. You know, you can feel it in an audience when someone does a great job. Uh, anyway, wow, we're rambling. Yeah. we got like 10 yeah. more minutes, man. What, what do you want to know? <laughs> oh, no. Like you're letting me go way off the rails. Oh, no. It's like, a, actually, this is all valuable information that we wanted to know. And we had, uh, I just wanted to also review a couple of things earlier that you had mentioned. You had mentioned also the fact that it's like a, with uh, not traveling outside of Seattle. Also as well, a lot of films are starting to become, it's like a, for years now, films have been going from states to state, uh, from different states, as well as also different countries as well, because of the tax crediting system. So as oh, filmmakers, right. do we have even the, uh, it's like uh, and a lower budget film what's available to you that's I'm, I'm glad you asked it that's a, that's a good place for us to spend a few minutes at least um, I, I I think it's really intriguing and and one of the one of the talks that when I do talks at festivals and things um, uh, you know and someone says here talk about a subject it's, it's often fundraising for low budget films you know it's 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 this idea of and a component of that is you know what can I do? You know, in terms of in low budget world, uh, tax tax incentives, uh, credits, um, you know, film incentives. You know, what what is available to me? And and I think the answer is um, well. First of all, you know, you obviously as a producer, you know, if, have a duty to your investors to uh, look at all those situations. And we usually do a state a state by state survey if we're looking at a project trying to score the best deal. And as you know, it up, goes up and down. And mm -hmm. you know, one year it's Michigan, and one year it's you know, New Orleans, and, you know, and, and, and Seattle always has, like, a mediocre one here in the state of Washington, but it's at least it's something. Um, all that matters. But I even think for, for producers who are doing low-budget films, you know, it's really important. I, I, I kind of view it this way. We all imagine, we all imagine, you know, in our mind's eye, a dollar bill, right? You know, good old greenback, a dollar bill. We can see it in our mind's eye. Our job as a producer, our job that we are working for an investor is really to do two things. One is 
we need to make if someone if 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 that dollar bill reflects money that is coming in to make my film, I have to make that dollar cost the least amount I can for an investor. Um, and obviously, uh, one way to do that is to figure out how to uh, make that dollar tax deductible or make that dollar subject to mm-hmm. a uh, film film finance credit, uh, film incentive program. You know, in Washington, we have a 30%. If my investor knows that they'll get a 30% payoff, they know that dollar really only costs them 70 cents, right? That's my job yeah. as, a, as a producer. On the, other, on the other side of that dollar bill, my job is to take that dollar bill and stretch it as far as I can, make it worth more than a dollar. And, and that can be, you know, just any, any number of things go into that kind of, uh, you know, calculus, um, you know, and, it, and it's everything from, um, uh, you, know, um, you know, programs that might be at a local level. It's uh, supplementing that dollar with, um, uh, donations that are matched, you know, at low levels. I don't know if you do the, uh, in, in Washington, for example, you know, if I make a picture that is really low budget and I know that the reality is I'm not going to use equity financing, mm-hmm. so I'm not going to go out and get, get investors at 50000 I've got to go raise the money, um, you know, I'll often go out and, you know, get a chunk of it through, let's say, donations. And, you you know, we'll all go, oh, yeah. But in our our state, for example, our biggest companies often will match any donations that their employees make. So if I'm going to go out and get donations for uh, a low-budget film, um, I am actually going to make sure that my donors, I'm going to figure out how to target people that work at the Boeing company, at Microsoft, at Amazon, Google, you know, these giant companies in the Pacific Northwest, and we all have those companies, because I can go and pitch them and say, if you give me a dollar, Mm-hmm. I'm going to get a 30% rebate, which means it only costs you 70 cents. So you like that, right? Or I have fiscal sponsorship. Uh, I have a 501c3 status that I've got granted to me. Um, and so you'll get, you know, you can treat it like a donation. Um, so it's only, you know, you're going to get a 28% return. But on the other side of the equation, um, because you work for Boeing or Microsoft or Amazon, they'll match it. So when you give me a dollar, you're actually giving me $2. So yeah. it only costs you it only costs you seventy cents to give me the dollar, but I I I turned that into two dollars. I mean that's that's how you have to think as a producer. And so when I think of budgeting and, and incentives, I'm putting it into this sort of simplistic calculus to always reduce the cost to an investor and maximize mm-hmm. the benefit for the for the company. And I take care I try to take advantage of all of those things. I mean, I, I have had films where they've been financed some by donors with those kind of subsidies. We've had the fiscal sponsors who have given us 501c3 status, so the donors all got deductions. And then we brought grants in, and then we went to arts commissions and cities. Uh, we've got non, you know, I always go after, if I have a film that has a message or a topic, I try to find the non-governmental organizations, the charities who are behind that topic. I hit them early. I go after them as early as I can. We did a film that was basically a high school comedy, a 15-minute high school short film comedy, mm-hmm. and we got seven, we got seven high schools involved in that, and new students out of the school for the big, you know, the obligatory camera shot in the front lawn of the high school, you know, to show that you're a high school. Um, and we got we got the all of the uh, uh, arts commissions and the PTA and anyone connected with supporting kids. The cause was kids, and art, and having kids be exposed to professional art experiences all helps finance this short film. And, you know, that's a really small scale, but it works at a large scale. There are large-scale organizations that want that kind of, uh, um, of content to be created. So and not only endorsement, kind of but actual exactly. physical financial support as well. Yeah. So it's, uh, you know, I've got this long list of, you know, bullet point things that I go after when I'm trying to cobble together financing for a short picture, but it always comes back to that make the dollars cheap for whoever's giving them to me, investor or donor, um, and make them go as far as I can by getting all these other folks to match it. You know, if I can get this much money, would you match it all the time? And, and people want to say yes if they believe in the subject matter. Um, and then the other thing I'm really a big proponent of is, is uh, uh, and this gets me in trouble, is, is selection. 
you know, I, I do have mm-hmm. kind of strong opinion. I mean, I, I think as a filmmaker, you should really put a ton of thought into, you know, the front end. This is the business plan geek in me. I mean, it's the business plan. It's who's the audience for your film? You know, am I telling a story that has an audience? Am I telling a story yeah. that people are clamoring to hear? I know that sounds, I know that sounds overly, overly simplistic, but I see lots of stuff come in and, and I, and I go, I don't get it. I, I mean, I, I appreciate this is personal or I appreciate that this was horrible or tragic, but you, you know, who's, who's paying 10 to $15 to come see the film? You know, I think that's just business planning 101. Well, and it's also building in the crowdsourcing as well, and also being able to build up a fan base for the film so that it, it, it does do the mass appeal, so that it does actually attract towards investors. And that's a great point when you reference crowdsourcing. We didn't get to that. But I think that is one of the key issues is you want to crowdsource when the crowd already exists. You don't, want, you, don't want to, you don't want to start a campaign for crowdsourcing and have no idea who's going to support your project. You know, that campaign goes up when you already have it in the bag. That's, that's, that's really when crowdfunding works. So, you know, if, you're, if you want to make Veronica Mars, and we can, we can say anything we want about that, whether it's an appropriate use of crowdsourcing, but that campaign was in the bag because their fans already existed. Right? They're, they're, yes. It's going to get fine. There was no question about it. And, and, and I think you can do that in a project that's not Veronica Mars. If you want to do a $50,000, you know, picture that is, you know, last, the last film we did that was a, you know, a historical UFO film. I never thought I'd do a UFO film. We ended up doing this historical, great FBI story about it, a true story about an FBI investigation of a 1947 UFO incident. Um, I was stunned at how eager... Um, the fans of that genre were. I, it just blew my mind. That crowd existed before we ever asked for money. And that, that's the key. You know, um, that, meant, that meant someone wanted to see the film. They already there. We knew who they were. So, yep. Yeah, good stuff. It's, it, it's we let, we a, almost killed an hour. What's, what, what's the last question? Actually, it, the last <laughs> question I wanted to ask other, uh, other than... Uh, it, then that it's like also if you will be willing to come back again so that we can continue also our talk on this as well as also on crowd the sourcing and going through also a little bit more of the indie uh, filmmaking because a lot of our community in terms of that of entertainment industry is built on people who it's like they don't have access to the million dollar budget they don't it's yeah. like and in this day and age um, what they consider to be low budget is 500 and below and 650 and below even in Hollywood standards Yep, yep, and that's accurate. That's, I mean, if you go to the American film market, in fact, years ago, three years ago, they were saying, you know, the distributors are saying any filmmaker who spends more than $500,000 on a, on, a, on a film that may not be theatrical, you know, you shouldn't. You just shouldn't spend more than that to make your film because we can't get more than that in return. We just can't do it. We don't know what the world's markets hold. I, I think that's really why. So, I mean, we are planning to make these films that are at these low budgets, and we have to understand the business model uh, behind that. So I'd love to come back. You guys were super easy on me. I thought you'd ask me something that I was embarrassed to answer, and you didn't. And you let me talk about my kids. I thank you profusely. Uh, oh, you're very welcome. Now, can you also tell uh, the listeners how they can get a hold of you? Hmm. How do they get um, in touch with you? Um, that's easy. I mean, I'm easy to find on the internet. Um, I have a on your site, for example. You have me up on your site, right? So my Correct. name, uh, my my name has more sound-alike consonants. It's crazy, you know. Saying it over the phone never works. So, uh, Steve Edmiston, the name's on your website. Um, I'm at Brace Point Law, and uh, I'm easy to find. So uh, and 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 on on our on our law firm website, I mean my phone. I don't hide the phone number. I'm easy to reach. So um, they can just track through your website and uh, and get the name and search. And you know I'm at, I'm easy to find. Very cool. And Kente, how do they get a hold of you? Uh, it's real easy. You can go to our website indyradio.org. That's i n d y radio.org. Or you can. Um, as well as you can go get me on Twitter at Kente F and uh, make sure you guys stay tuned because in about 30 minutes from now we'll, we'll be having uh, the Infectious Geek Show and they're going to be talking about video games of all things. <laughs> Which is really cool. And uh, it's like uh, that's going to be an exciting show because uh, who doesn't love video games? <laughs> that's right. 
and also it's like you can reach me via LinkedIn, Facebook, uh, Twitter at Movie Time Indie. Um, also, goodness, Bizipedia. Like I've said a million times, if you don't know how to find me, you're not stalking me hard enough. <laughs> I don't think that there's physically a site that it's like footprint wise it's like everything from YouTube and also on the website itself for the film www.pastlivesproductionsinc.net and of course an SL working with Rock Against Hunger and at Superstar so it's like uh, and Thank you so so much, Steve. And it's like if we can have uh, have you back very very soon because I we'd love to continue that conversation because, like I said, a lot of us are in that exact category. Well, love to do it. Let's we'll, we'll do it. That'll be fun. I look forward to it. I appreciate the the time. It was really fun for me, which is always a criteria. So thank you. And uh, we look forward to it. And next week, please join us also when we are going to be speaking with Todd Berger. All right. All right. We'll see you next time. Have a great evening, all. <laughs>